You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. This is Chris Costa, the Executive Director at the International Spy Museum. Today we're joined by journalist Jason Rezaian, Washington Post Global Opinions Writer. Jason served as the Post's correspondent in Tehran from 2012 to 2016. Jason spent 544 days unjustly imprisoned by Iranian authorities until his release in January 2016. Again, Jason, thank you very much for joining us today. I very much appreciate you coming over here. Thank you for bringing me in, Chris. It's a real pleasure. Well, I'm looking forward to you sharing some thoughts on your book, Prisoner, that you published last year, correct? Yeah, it just came out uh, around this time, 2019, uh, right around the third anniversary of my release. Uh, We just celebrated the fourth anniversary of my release a couple weeks ago. Wow. And, um, you know, given everything that's happened vis-a-vis the U.S. and Iran over the last uh, month or so, Uh, it seems like my experience is as relevant, if not more so, than ever. Well, so that's a great jumping-off point. That's what I wanted to talk about before we dove into your book, Soleimani Strike, Implications on Other Hostages Being Held by the Regime. Uh, What are your thoughts on that in the way ahead for the United States and Iran? Well, I've felt um, for the past couple years that uh, the likelihood of, of bringing folks home who are still being held hostage there uh, without the benefit of direct diplomatic communications uh, is going to be pretty difficult. We saw that uh, in the the late spring last year, um, Nazar Zaka was released, which was a wonderful bit of news. Yes, it was. Uh, And then uh, our friend uh, Mr. Shia Wong uh, was released in December in what appears to be uh, some sort of swap. Uh, I hope that that those channels remain open 
so that other people can enjoy the sorts of reunions with their family that that I did. Um, but I worry that that the um, the escalation in tensions over the past few weeks is going to make that more difficult. I share your concern. At the same time, I'm going to throw something out. Sure. The Iranians accepted responsibility for tragically bringing down a commercial aircraft. And I thought that there's a possibility a country that reconciles a mistake, albeit they couldn't have concealed that forever. Can they ever accept responsibility for, say, Bob Levinson as an example? I think what uh, the downing of the plane and their reversal on their story uh, within a couple of days uh, is a really good reminder that it's very difficult to hide the truth. Uh, it's become more and more difficult. In the case of Bob Levinson, there's so little that we know. It's gone on for so long. Um, and you know, the Iranians have essentially stonewalled uh, U.S. Uh, authorities in terms of giving any kind of information. But I think if you go back to the earliest days, um, you know, they said that they arrested him. Uh, we had this video of proof of life three years after his uh, his disappearance. In an uh, orange Gitmo-like jumpsuit. Exactly. Right? And, you know, that's the sort of thing that, um, as someone who's been on the other side of that, who's been in that, that situation... Um, I refuse to talk about Bob Levinson in the past tense. Um, until I know otherwise, he's alive and uh, and likely in Iranian custody. Uh, and I, I think it's a, a woeful miscarriage of justice that more hasn't been done uh, to bring him home. Now, I'm not saying that the FBI and other um, agencies in the U.S. government aren't doing uh, what they can, but as my brother uh, used to say, uh, when I was being held and when he was asked whether or not the U.S. government was doing enough, so, you know, I appreciate all the efforts of the government, but clearly they're not doing enough because Jason's still in prison. Um, and I think we have, uh, as private citizens, sort of the, uh, the luxury to take that approach. I understand that the government isn't always in the same uh, luxurious position to, to be able to uh, make those kinds of demands. But as a public, if we don't continue to make demands, people like Bob Levinson, uh, the, the folks that are being held in Venezuela, uh, Michael White, another American who's in Iran, Siamak Namazi, Bagher Namazi, um, you know, we're, we're really kind of leaving these people out to dry uh, if we don't make a public nuisance of it every single day. Well, thanks, Jason. And, and I share your observation that we should talk about Bob in the current tense, yeah. and we want to resolve that case. We want to bring him home to the Levinson family. And the interagency certainly, from my optic, uh, worked tirelessly sure. to resolve not just that case, but other cases. But to your point, it's... Uh, it's never a success until the person comes home. Exactly. So we, not we now, right? Yeah. But we have to collectively hold the government responsible and uh, and continue to put pressure on them. And one thing I want to add to that, you, sure. you brought up the downing of, of the airplane. Um, I, I think that responsible governments, uh, representative democratic governments like ours, like the United Kingdom's, like Australia's, Canada's, um, maybe Germany, the Scandinavian countries, Japan, others, 
um, you know, the, the notion of um, protection and care for citizens is sort of a defining pillar of representative government. If, if the, the rights and, uh, and life and right to life of people uh, don't matter, citizenship doesn't really matter. Uh, and I think that the, the downing of the Iranian plane that had so many Iranian nationals on it is a real good indication uh, of the disregard that they, they hold for human life. And I, I always feel as though we just need to be better than that. Uh, and at times we are, um, but I, I, I have a, a special perch uh, where I can um, point these things out, and I, I will always do it because it's an ideal that we should stand, stand for. And you spent 544 days in an Iranian prison. So that's what we want to dive into. Sure. So tell me about the night you and Yegi were arrested. So just kind of summarize for yeah. us that first night. We were um, getting ready to uh, travel to the U.S. Uh, 72 hours later, we had tickets to come back. Um, we'd been married for 15 months. Yegi was going to become um, a U.S. permanent resident. We were going to get her green card. And we were going to really embark on the life that we had envisioned for ourselves of, you know, living and working in Iran and spending part of each year in, in the United States where, where I'm from. Um, and it was after I had just returned uh, from Vienna uh, where I was covering a round of nuclear negotiations um, that on the night of July 22nd, 2014, we were getting ready to go to a, a kind of a farewell party uh, in celebration of my mother-in-law's birthday. Uh, as we were leaving our apartment, um, very uh, suddenly, uh, we, we lived in a high-rise building. We, we took the elevator down to the garage. When the door opened, there were men standing there with guns aimed directly at me. Um, they pried their way into the elevator, took us back up to our apartment. You know, we're kind of waving a piece of paper around that they claimed was an arrest warrant, but I couldn't read it and yes. it didn't make any sense to me. Um, forced us to let them back into our apartment with us. Um, proceeded to, to ransack our house, take all of our identity uh, documents, uh seized our, our our devices, our cell phones, our laptops, uh, made us relinquish all of our passwords. What they were looking for was completely unclear to us. We hadn't done anything wrong. Um, after about an hour and a half, they said, we're leaving. Uh, and they, they marched us out of our apartment through the courtyard of our building. Wasn't your head covered with at that point? At, not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Okay. No. They, they walked us through the, the courtyard past other neighbors, mm -hmm. which is a kind of a walk of shame that, yeah, that happens. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, and, and you know what? People, people in authoritarian countries are familiar with this, right? Either they've had it happen to themselves or they see somebody else be subjected to this. It's designed to humiliate, but it's also designed as a warning to other people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we were prominent uh, citizens, prominent residents in that area. People knew exactly who we are. They threw us in the back of a van uh, with tinted windows. That's when they blindfolded and handcuffed me. 
Um, they took us directly to Evian Prison, which is the famous and notorious for prison. For political prisoners. For political prisoners, uh, which was, you know, thankfully uh, just a couple of miles from where we lived, so it wasn't a long ride. Um, the next thing you know, my wife and I were separated. I continued to be blindfold. I was under a blindfold for several hours. And the interrogation started right away with accusations that I was the CIA chief in Tehran. Um, and after that, uh, you know, when I didn't uh, admit to that, uh, because who would admit to such a outlandish claim, uh, I was told that, that I would be uh, staying there for a long time that I would have to change my clothes, and once I was wearing the prison uniform rather than my own street clothes, uh, that it might be years before I got out. And when you hear this sort of thing, you think it's an exaggeration, you think it's designed to scare you, because it is. Uh, But you also have a sense of foreboding that um, you don't really have any control anymore. And um, uh, beginning that night, I was put into solitary confinement in a very small room that was about... I estimate that it was about four and a half by eight and a half feet. Um, the lights were on, fluorescent lights, 24 hours a day. Uh, and I was in that room. Uh, the only times I was out of that room was for interrogations. Um, Which you came to almost look forward to, right? Well, you do. And I think that that's part of... Human interaction. The, yeah. I mean, we are not designed to be forced into isolation for a prolonged period of time. There's a reason why... All of the international conventions on torture uh, include solitary confinement. Solitary confinement past a couple of days uh, is one of the most extreme forms mm-hmm. of physical torture that there. Excuse me, psychological Psycho. torture that there is. And we'll talk more about that. I want to sure. go back to the piece. It's got to be frightening when, well, one, you know, you're not the station chief for CIA, yeah. but you're accused of being the station chief. Yeah. For CIA, which is interesting, but I, I should tell the listeners and again read the book because it's it's humorous uh, in many many cases. Uh, there are some great funny stories, and w- one that struck me right up front was Operation Avocado. Yeah. So if you could share that with our listeners and the connection to CIA avocados, what was sure. that all about? So uh, several years earlier, I had started a, a Kickstarter project on the crowdfunding website. And, uh, you know, my very tongue-in-cheek proposal was that I wanted to raise money uh, to explore the possibility of starting an avocado farm in Iran. Why did I want to do this? Well, I'm from California. I love avocados. Uh, You know, I've competed in in guacamole competitions. Not fared very well, but, you know, something I I, uh, have a, a deep affection for. And I was always surprised that in a country like Iran, which is one of the leading agricultural producers in the world, uh, where you could grow just about anything, that there weren't avocados, and it wasn't part of the diet. And why was that? And why was it that most people didn't know what an avocado was? To me, this was one further example of, uh, you know, the artificial isolation of Iran from the international economy. A metaphor in some ways. That's really what it was. That was the whole point. And, you know, the idea was in trying to uncover why it was that there wasn't avocados there and and potentially figure out a way to get a few uh, trees in the ground, (laughs) uh, that we'd be making a larger point. Um, But the way that they took it was that this is a 
uh, code word for some sort of nefarious special operation, uh, and we just don't know what it is. And literally, for the first year that I was in custody, this continued to come up. It came up in interrogations. It came up in court. Every time they would talk about how they were treating me, uh, you know, incrementally better, they would say, you know, you're not cooperating. You know, you've told us a lot about a lot of different things, but you still haven't come clean about this this uh, project avocado. Don't think that we've forgotten about this. I mean, it was just one of these things. When I sat down to write this story, I kind of negotiated with myself. So how 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 much depth do I want to go into about the avocado? And I thought to myself, you can't really tell this story without it, because otherwise. Uh, it's not going to sound as ridiculous and insane and whimsical uh, as it was. Well, I, I certainly enjoyed that story, and I, I, I like the point that it, it was metaphorical, right? Um, before we talk about your wonderful wife, Yegi, and uh, because in, in some ways there's a bit of a love story woven into sure. this memoir, as memoirs often do share, and you reveal yourself but you also talked about Iran in terms of revealing itself and I really like the wording where you say it's deceiving because at the end of the day Iran is going to disappoint you so let's tease that out a little bit what did you mean by that well Iran is is a, a fascinating country that is so misunderstood in the West so invariably when somebody goes to visit it um, almost universally people are awestruck by the beauty of the place by the hospitality of people uh by the easygoing nature of people uh that people are much more uh open to communication uh frankly attractive and um inviting and humorous than you would imagine because for years we've had this perception of the place uh as where they you know burn american flags and chant death to america well they do that too uh so it's a rich and complex place but you know to me um in spite of all of those wonderful attributes mm-hmm. uh at the end of every road uh there is a darkness and um that could be you know deception cheating uh injustice a disregard as we talked about earlier for for human life right. and for the life of the citizens um and you know i, I don't necessarily want to chalk it all up to a national identity or a political identity it's just something that over time as somebody who came from a mixed Iranian non-Iranian background uh something that I recognize that you know as lovable and as uh seductive and attractive as the place and the people are um there's also the the possibility of being uh, let down in big ways if you're not careful about it. So I, I just wanted to to show that it's complex. So, you know, you start off with the notion that, uh, you know, it's a difficult place or it's a, uh adversarial place. And then you realize, no, it's not necessarily that. And then you realize, well, but there's also this other layer of, of um, things uh, things that you can't necessarily put your finger on but at the end of the day might might lead you to disappointment well i thought it was a fair observation in light of your story uh and i would had this not happened to me i would have said the same thing <laughs> got it so let's dial back a little bit 
Anthony Bourdain, he also had an allure and an interest in Iran. Just real quick, what was the relationship there with Anthony Bourdain, and what does that have to do with your story? Well, uh, for people who read the book, you'll see that it was published by the Anthony Bourdain imprint at Echo. He, uh, before his death, had um, a series of books that he would put out every year. He would go out and um, find stories that he wanted to help tell. He do about half a dozen each year, and my book is one of the last in that line. Um, in 2014, a month or so before we were arrested, after many years of trying, uh, he was able to get uh, visas and permission to come shoot an episode in Iran. Now, he doesn't, didn't even really know this, I don't think, but it, it, dating back to 2007, I had been in touch with producers from their show when he was still at the Travel Channel about coming and doing an episode in Iran. Um, ultimately, Travel Channel's insurance would not underwrite such a, a risky venture. So it, it you know it had to wait until he got to CNN. So I never met him before uh, he showed up uh, in Tehran, uh, and we were asked uh, by somebody you know by by one of the producers who had heard from a Tehran contact that you know the guy to to, to meet while you're in Iran is Jason. Uh, so I, I spent some time on the phone sort of advising the production uh, team about where they should shoot and places to eat and things to order and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then on the last day of their trip, they called up and they said, would you and your wife like to you know, do an interview? Um, I, I think maybe something else had fallen through. I, I really don't know. But uh, we said, of course. And we met them at the place that we were told to, to meet, a restaurant up in the hills above Tehran. And um, we just really hit it off. Uh, and it was interesting because at the end of the, the, the conversation, I think we talked for about an hour and a half, I asked the producer, I said, was that any good? Do you think you'll use it? He said, oh, that's, that's some of the best stuff that we've got. And clearly he was fond of you and Yegi because usually he cuts the conversation off 20 minutes or so. You know, he doesn't linger like that. Um, so we felt like we had a... a a new friend strong rapport yeah just, yeah and you know terrific. we swapped uh um contact information i said we'd be in touch when we got to america that didn't happen uh and then when we were arrested i thought to myself you know this episode could be something that would really help raise awareness around my case i had no idea where they were in the process right you know you sometimes worry that cnn or news outlet is going to uh eliminate you from the the thing because they don't want to uh, make the situation any worse. That's right. I had this deep understanding that the more news there is about yep. me, you make that the point better. in the book. Yeah. So when I found out that uh, he was had become such an advocate for us, it was so uh, encouraging, right? And when I got out, he was one of the first people I reached out to. Um, and without going into a lot of detail, uh, Yegi and I ended up spending quite a lot of time with him um, in those first couple months after we got out. He was incredibly kind to us. He, he was he was a, a friend to us at a time where you know we didn't know which way to look, and I think we both felt and feel as though as long as we had Tony in our corner, uh, everything was going to be okay. Uh, he guided both of us in terms of 
how to approach our careers moving forward and how to approach that that moment of um reintegration and uh when he died I, it was the you know in the last 4 years since our return really the thing that that's kind of uh been the most gut-wrenching for both of us I can understand that, and I appreciate you sharing that. You know, the other piece that I wanted to ask you about is the idea that Yegi, if I'm not mistaken, spent about 72 days in custody as well. All of them in solitary confinement. And since you were separated, though, I wonder if you could share, and I know it's deeply personal, but I'm, I'm interested to know, how did that weigh on you? Was there guilt? How did you reconcile yeah. that? You didn't know what was happening. Incredible guilt, okay. to be honest with you, Chris. I mean, you know, the one thing that, you know, although there was a lot of confusion about everything that was happening, mm-hmm. the one thing that was clear was that this was about me, not about her. Um, and the fact that, you know, my wife would be subjected to that sort of psychological torture uh, because of things that I was accused of doing, hadn't done, the fact that I hadn't done them didn't matter. I mean, you know, you're playing in your mind, you know, what would have happened if, you know, we weren't married? What if she didn't get stuck in this situation? I was also very concerned about her parents. Right, I was going to um, ask the family dynamic, you know, the jeopardy that they faced, right? Yeah, and, and I, I just worried so much that they would... Um, blame all of this on me, which turned out to be not true at all. Um, and I worried a lot about my my own mother and brother, sure. who had been through so much themselves in recent years, that I just did not, you know. Again, going back to this notion, they, you know, the Iranian authorities, their their political aspirations and the the security of their system trumps everything else. You know the 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 lives and livelihoods and well-being of people that might stand in their way even though we were you know real bystanders I and mean, we weren't it wasn't as though we were involved in any kind of plot to take down the Iranian regime or anything mm-hmm. like that um but you know destroying our lives and ripping them apart the way they've done so many times in the past is something that uh uh I don't wish upon anybody else but I think that my life is a little bit more complete having seen that, that sort of process up close. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So let's personalize, let's put a face on this a little bit. Cosm, he was one of your tormentors. Yeah. I love the relationship. We'll talk about how it ended up because I'm yeah. interested in you sharing that as well. But talk about your relationship with Cosm, your your chief tormentor, if it's fair to say. Yeah. What was that like? So this person presented himself, I think, on the second day that I was in Evin, and 
the the interrogation started uh, with him standing behind me and me blindfolded, which is a very submissive position. You know, you really helpless, help, hopeless. You know, designed to be so. Yeah. And um, you know, I'm the type of person that really tries to form a positive impression and ingratiate myself to others. Uh, and you know, he had a tendency of not always being, you know, very stern. It would go back and forth. And so finally, after several days of this, of him telling me that, you know, uh, it was his job to to help me and to save me and all this stuff. I understand that that's not true. But, you know, I decided to kind of take a play uh, from his book. And I said, well, you know, you're my only friend right now. Uh, you know, help me figure this out. And he said, we're friends? Really? I said, yeah, of course. I mean, I've got, I've got nobody else at this point. And he said, you know, take off your blindfold and turn around. You know, friends need to be able to look at each other. And that changed the relationship. You know, all of a sudden, it went from me uh, being uh, confused, afraid, um, and uh, completely out of my element to a situation where I'm much more comfortable conversing with somebody. Um, and he wasn't a big guy. He wasn't, you know, very physically intimidating. He was clearly younger than I was. Um, and, you know, I, I could then start to see uh, what pleased him, what agitated him, what frustrated him. Um, and, you know, I, I could have no idea in those early days that, you know, this person would be one of the few constants in my life for the next year and a half. Well, I found it fascinating, and for our audience, they're always interested in the spy. Obviously, the spy aspect. There's no spy, spy in the story. Counter, yeah, right. <laughs> spy, counter, spy. And yeah. what's fascinating is you make the point that as a journalist, you build rapport. Yeah. And really, you exhibit, and I've always said this, a human intelligence officer uh, exhibits all the same characteristics as a journalist in some sure. ways, even though they are two very different obviously yeah. careers and we don't mix the two because we don't want to jeopardize uh, journalists worldwide right at least here in the united states in particular but yet you were consistently accused of espionage and then i thought it was fascinating there was a transition that you started out being accused of a, being a spy a station chief cia officer and then it transitioned into a propagandist right yeah then that almost seemed to be a a um almost a it was a creeping invasion it didn't just kind of uh jump out all at once it came over time but you were accused of essentially influencing iran therefore you were going to slowly overcome iran you know it was a culture war i mean maybe i'm not describing it right but that's how i saw it as a reader no, or how right. i that's very that's very uh, much what it what it was. I mean, I think that the fear of that regime and so many other regimes is that um, if if their ideology is uh, able to be diluted by foreign culture and foreign ideas, um, their ultimate de demise is not too far behind. And um, I, you know, I, I think. On that score, they did have something to be worried about. Not about me, 
but about the direction that their country is going and that the direction that that really all connected societies are going uh right now more and more we have one dominant popular culture in the world you know the the films that come out of hollywood and to a certain extent bollywood but you know the music that comes out Mm -hmm. of america and and a couple other places they dominate everywhere well our soft power as they exactly yeah and i think you know i write about that in the book a little bit that you know our soft power is our ultimate weapon and it's the one that the islamic republic is never going to be able to replicate the islamic state is never going to be able to replicate saudi arabia and china and you know go on down the list they'll never be able to replicate we have a society here in this country made up of people from every walk of life from every society around the world and we're able to uh kind of incorporate and integrate all of those stories to tell larger stories to 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 the world that everybody can relate to and everybody can kind of feel these guys can't do that and then one of the quotes from your book you were accused of gutting iran of its revolutionary ideals again there there could be no accusation that was more serious right you were chipping away at their regime that was the accusation of course and as as crazy as it sounds now at the time when you heard some of those accusations how did that make you feel well you know it's um Iranians have a, a, a saying. I don't know what what the um, the origin of it is, but you know when when you are trying to pat someone's ego, uh, uh, that person might say to you, uh, you know, stop putting uh, watermelons under my arms. You know, like you're you're, you're giving me a lot of watermelons, which yeah. is basically you know you're boosting my ego, you're making my <laughs> head big, um, and I, that's that's what I would say to them. I say, hey guys, you know. You're giving me a lot more credit than than I deserve. But then ultimately I started to realize that I was on trial for America. You know, I was on trial for uh, engagement with America. And it wasn't about me personally. It was about uh, this this idea or this these sets of ideas that um, because of who I worked for, because of my nationality, uh, because of my dual nationality, uh, I represented these things. And you talk about that later. I was going to get into it later, but now's a good time. That's when, no, no, no worries at all. This is free flowing, yeah. right? There's no script here. I, I recognize this realization in your narrative that one day you realized you are a hostage but you are representing something much bigger than yourself. Yeah. And you actually referred to yourself as a boogeyman, right? Yeah. And that re- you represented y- the United States in this case. And uh, you were really defending us in some ways. Yeah. I mean, and I us think... Us being the U.S. I, I felt uh, that very acutely as time went on, especially as uh, the U.S. and Iran approached... Um, you know the culmination of the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. Um, the closer they got to that, the more adamant hardliners in the Iranian regime were uh, about the need to execute me, uh, and and really the rhetoric flared for months uh, around me. Yeah, but you were threatened with execution often, periodically, often. Yeah, I mean, from the first day. 
towards until the end. I mean, it, it would come up, and you know, interspersed with you're going to be freed in a few hours. It's gonna, psychological it's, torment. That's right? all it is. You don't know where the end is. You don't know where the beginning is. That's right. Um, yeah, it's, it, you could sense that from your book. I also saw that you refer to Iran's revolution as really the birth of hostage-taking. Iran, that's its identity. It started 40 years ago, and it still continues. Just unwrap that a little bit, and then I want to move to your trial, because we could talk all day, I think, and, yeah, sure. and uh, we're mindful of your time, but uh, sh share some of your thoughts on that. So... The the hostage crisis, 1979 to early 1981, is the backdrop of so much of how America views Iran. Um, but I also think it has a lot to do with how Iran, as an Islamic Republic, views itself. It's never taken responsibility for taking 52 Americans hostage and holding them for 444 days. It's never apologized for that. It's never really been held accountable in any measurable way. Um, and the notion that uh, a foreign power uh, would um, attack and occupy uh, another country's embassy I mean, this is a, a, a international diplomatic norm that goes back hundreds of years. You don't do this. Right. Right? Uh, and yet, every year on November 4th, the anniversary of that, that takeover, there's massive state-funded demonstrations in Tehran. As long as that happens, and as long as they continue to take foreign nationals and hold them under spurious and you know unfounded charges, as they did with me, um, I will be of the the opinion that uh, hostage taking is part and parcel to their foreign policy. It's how they do business, and you know I, I think one of the struggles of the Islamic Republic, you know, Iran is an important country. It's an important strategic country that has uh, incredible uh, resources, reserves of oil and natural gas strategically positioned uh, in a part of the world where there's a lot of intersecting right. uh, cultures and faiths. Vying for more and more influence and, and legitimacy. And, and legitimacy. Um, but they want to be taken seriously. Uh, unfortunately, they want to be taken seriously and at the same time not play by the rules. You can't have both. That's right. You don't get to do both. You know, you, people would make the argument sometimes that Russia and China don't play the, by by all the rules either. Iran is not Russia or China. Iran is a second tier power, uh, vying to be you know considered a, a you know a, a power player in that part of the world. And I think they they do wield tremendous power, and they are essential to the the notion of future stability in the Middle East. But without you know without making some real changes, uh, they're never going to get the respect that they that they so desperately want. So that's interesting, and I want to interject there, the idea of nuclear talks, your trial, yeah. all that playing out, again, vying for influence. And the backdrop of this is nuclear talks that are happening. Yeah. So just talk a little bit about your trial experience, the nuclear talks, and the relevance of that 
and how that played into your ultimate release? So I, I started, um, it wasn't until nine months into my uh, imprisonment that I was brought to, to court for trial. Uh, I'd never had a meeting with a lawyer. I'd been interrogated relentlessly for months. Uh, there were no witnesses in my trial. There was no evidence in my trial. Um, but in May of 2015, um, my trial in the Tehran Revolutionary Court began. And we learned uh, pretty quickly that each one of my four trial dates was timed very closely with a landmark moment in the nuclear negotiations. It was as if um, the Revolutionary Guard was sort of uh, pointing to America and saying, you know, you think that we're making progress in this deal, but look, we're going to continue uh, this ridiculous trial of this American reporter. And I, I believe that my my detention, even if it wasn't designed to do this on day one, was meant, came to be meant to uh, to be an audacious act that would um, scare America and Americans away from this nuclear deal. We don't talk often about the internal politics of Iran, uh, but that was a key component to my my capture and ultimately my release. Um, and you know, I, I think when the nuclear deal was implemented, excuse me, when it was signed in July of 2015, there were a lot of people who thought that I would be automatically released on that day. Well, we had to wait another six months until the deal was actually put in place. But, you know, between that time, a lot of side deals were being worked out. And one of those, uh, fortunately, was over my release and the release of other Americans. And you had the opportunity, over time, I should say, you were given different access over time. And uh, you... You had a roommate at one point, and you also, or cellmate, I should yep. say, and you also had access to TV. And you saw one, one uh, interview with President Obama. What was the, what was the, I guess your takeaway from that observation when you saw it? So I mean, I, I saw, I had access to an Iranian state television, which okay. is a highly curated, and censored, uh, thing. But during the the negotiations. Uh, they were playing a lot of um, major speeches by American politicians, mostly by Obama and John Kerry. Mm-hmm. Um, Secretary of State Secretary at the time. At the time. And, you know, I, I think I, I watched these with a close attention, trying to figure out whether or not they would talk about me or talk about my plight, talk about Iran and how things were going. Um, it became clear that that the Iranian state media was preparing the Iranian public for the fact that they were going to do this deal with the great Satan, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, you can't say that for 35 years. You can't call another power that name and then start to negotiate with it all of a sudden without preparing the the grounds a bit. But, you know, uh, uh, periodically uh, questions about me would surface in interviews that uh, were happening on TV. There was one twice, actually, when Iran's uh, foreign minister was interviewed and asked questions about me, lying about my my, my fate and my uh, circumstances. But I knew that if my name was being brought up in those sorts of occasions and that it was being broadcast 
on television, both in Iran and you know outside of Iran, um, that I had a fighting chance. What I didn't know were the lengths to which uh, my employers at the Washington Post and the 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 law firm uh, that they hired here in Washington D.C. Wilmer Hale, which is uh, you know no slouch. I mean, yep. this is, these are these are big time international lawyers. At one point, Kazem, my interrogator, said to me, "You've got um, you've got a team of twenty. You're a very important person. There's a t- team of twenty lawyers working for you." And I, did you believe him? I laughed it laughed it off when I got out and I and I told the 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 lead on the case that that he said that he laughed and he said uh actually i think 27 different lawyers build hours <laughs> well you just case. referred to also washington post right you yeah. discovered how much washington post was pressing for you it was david ignatius didn't you see mm-hmm. a an interview, interview. Zarif so and david ignatius that must yeah. have been hugely uplifting, uplifting for you incredibly uplifting and it wasn't like you know it wasn't as though they they uh, showed me this on purpose, right? This was something that was appearing on the national television. I mean, there's 20 different channels. I just happened to stumble upon it live. Uh, and I thought to myself, okay, now there's a good sign that, you know, uh, this distinguished uh, columnist from my newspaper uh, who I've engaged with over the years is speaking publicly on my behalf, on behalf of the newspaper, saying that the newspaper demands answers. Um, that's the sort of thing that, you know, you breathe a little bit easier that day, you know. But you also worry that how long, uh, how long can that energy be sustained, you know? 544 days is a long time to keep somebody's name in the news, especially if that person is not able to speak for themselves. That's right. Your trial experience seemed to be up and down. But in the end, that's when, and we referred to it early on, that's when you recognized that you were a boogeyman. You were, you were representative of the United States. And yeah. uh, despite the fact that you were accused also then of running a network during your trial, um, an intelligence network, and of course, it's in one level, it's very laughable, but it had to be serious because that was your trial to determine whether you would spend the rest of your life in Iran. And you didn't know, right? I had no idea. And, you know, I, I think the the absurdity of it can be a very dangerous thing because you um, you have to be very disciplined in... Um, taking those questions seriously and answering them seriously, uh, which I did. I went to great lengths to say, you know, the things that you're accusing me of uh, are not only not things that I've done, they're not things that are illegal by your own constitution. Uh, They are things that have been reported in your own, you know, national and domestic media. Uh, I can tell you approximately on which days they were reported. You know what I mean? I mean, I... I do. I became a very studious uh, consumer of Iranian state media and realized that um, there was absolutely nothing that they had on me. And there's, you know, they still talk about me as the spy that they sold back to America. Uh, But the truth is, um, there's never been a shred of anything like evidence presented publicly. Um, And there's never been, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they spent so many hours interrogating me. 
uh, hundreds of hours interrogating me. Not a single frame of that has ever been displayed publicly. Not only interrogating you, but as you said, you were tormented. It was psychological torture, but not physical torture. And uh, we get a sense of that when we read your book. You also observed that you felt a little bit like Elian Gonzalez. So remind us who Elian is. Elian was the little boy who, in 1999... uh, fled Cuba with his mother. He was only five years old at the time, I think. Uh, and they tried to raft uh, to the U.S. with a group of others. He was the only one that survived. And uh, his father didn't know that his mother was taking him. And he was back in Cuba. They had relatives in Miami. Uh, and he became sort of um, the rope in a tug of war. Mm-hmm. And that's what I felt like. Um, and, I, you know, I think... It's not a a perfect uh, comparison, but it's the closest one I could come to because these two countries are both claiming that they have uh, a hold on me. And the truth is, I was a, I was a citizen of both countries. And even you know, in the hours before my release, Kazem and others were telling me, you know, how yeah. you know when I get back to the U.S., you know, th- they're gonna interrogate you they're going to treat you much worse than than we did they might even end up sending you guantanamo and i'm thinking to myself i didn't do anything here and i sure as heck didn't do anything over there (laughs) you know what i mean so it's uh um yeah it was confusing so you just talked about uh sort of the end game when you were getting ready to be released you talk about brett mcgurk who was an envoy at the time yeah Tell us what mango sticky rice meant to you and how that fit in. And just kind of wrap up how the trial ended because this is a happy ending because you were sent back to the United States. So when the trial ended, that was in August of 2015, I was sent back to prison and, you know, no verdict was ever released in my case. You know, they said that I had been, uh, you know, found guilty, but... There's no piece of paper that was ever uh, created uh, acknowledging that fact. No sentencing ever happened. Um, I was essentially just put back on ice in prison. And Kazem and the other interrogators really stopped coming to see me. Um, What we didn't know was at that time, Brett McGurk, who uh, had been President Obama's envoy on ISIS, Mm -hmm. and had been spending a lot of his time in uh, Syria and Iraq, had also been tasked with secret negotiations to release myself along with several other Americans who were being held in Iranian prisons. And why not Levinson? You had made um, an observation on that. Why wasn't he part of I mean, he was definitely part of the negotiations. Every negotiation uh, over hostages being held in Iran to my knowledge, starts with Bob Levinson. It, you know, that's always the starting off point, and Iran has not given an inch. Um, and I think uh, I, I've never been in those negotiations. I don't know what those negotiations are like, but I think uh, there has to be some creative uh, ways to get Iran to share what they do know or uh, release Mr. Levinson. And in your book, you you make reference to the previous uh, Iranian leadership. They were the ones responsible They were responsible. I mean, that's how the current regime distanced themselves from it, correct? And I think at that moment, 
we're in a different moment now, but five years ago when they were on the verge of four and a half years ago, when they're on the verge of making this deal, uh, acknowledging Bob Levinson's, uh, disappearance, um, and giving a full accounting of it wouldn't exactly after 10 years of denying it would not be, you know, something that bred a lot of confidence in America with their new negotiating, uh, counterparts. Right. So I think that the Rouhani and Zarif administration have just wanted to not have anything to do with it at all, which is heartbreaking. You know, you and I have both spent plenty of time with the Levinson family, uh, the, the, the torment that they've had to endure, uh, and, and not have, uh, clear answers on a process, right. uh, is just beyond unfair. Yeah. It's, it's tormenting. It's barbarity in some it really ways. Is. Yeah. Uh, so mango sticky rice. Mm. I wanted to come back to that. So because we're leaving people hanging. What? Uh, in the, in the hours, uh, after I was let out of prison, but taken to the airport, I really wasn't free. And they told me that Yegi would not be coming back to the U.S. with me. My mom was in Iran at that point advocating for me. The two of them were brought to the airport to say goodbye, and they were um, told that they, that they wouldn't be able to, to leave Iran. Uh, they were put in a room and held there overnight, and finally the next morning, very early, uh, they were let out of that room. They were given their cell phones back and told that Jason's taken off. Uh, you can go home now and celebrate his release and have a nice breakfast. So they get in a taxi cab to go home. Yegi turns on a uh, cell phone, and there's dozens of missed calls from my bu- my brother. Um, Who's they, calling from the States. He's calling from the States and trying to kind of help them prepare for their departure because this idea that they weren't leaving was a lie. Uh, McGurk had, um, had written... Uh, spouses into the the agreement as well and Yegi was the only spouse I see um, so she was to take off with me um, and my brother called and, and sort of explained this to uh, to Yegi and, and she said well what am I supposed to do you know if the plane hasn't taken off and you know she's like well go home and pack a bag and uh, the Swiss ambassador is going to come pick you up she said, well, I don't know what the Swiss ambassador looks like. I don't know anything. And she, my brother said, look, you're going to get a phone call from somebody, and that person uh, is going to uh, tell you uh, your favorite dessert. That's going to be the password. And we had just come back when we were arrested in, in 2014. A couple months earlier, we'd gone to Thailand with my big brother. And Yegi was eating mango sticky rice at every occasion. Gotcha. So that's how... Uh, my brother had it in his mind. So a few minutes later, uh, they're driving back to, to my in-law's house so Yegi and my mom can pack bags, and the phone rings, and it's an American voice on the other side. And uh, uh, the person says, you know, um, I'm calling with some instructions, but I'm supposed to tell you that your favorite dessert is mango sticky rice. <laughs> and so that's how that became gotcha. A gotcha. You know, part of the lore. That was Brett McGurk on the phone who really uh, just cooled Yegi's uh, nerves and explained to her the sequencing of what was going to happen. 
that the plane would not take off without her, which was, you know, a huge relief to, uh, to her. And, you know, unsurprisingly, um, uh, Brett McGurk has become a real important person in our lives, uh, because we owe our freedom to him. Oh, that's terrific. That's a terrific part of the story. And, uh, yeah, I know, I know McGurk, uh, very well. And, and, uh, I think that really was representative of some of the back channel work that was done yeah. uh, along with your friends at the Washington Post yeah. in your broad network there were a lot of folks pulling for you and uh, I think your story is extremely powerful and I think that the memoir is very personal we didn't get into as much about Yegi as I would like to talk about by the book <laughs> that's right but uh, I, I full disclosure I know Yegi and I I know Jason, and uh, they're a tremendous couple, and you've got an amazing story. Um, but your story doesn't just illuminate what happened to you. It also shows the very human plight of hostages generally, and we made those points in our discussion today. But is there anything else you want to say about hostage takers, hostages, how the U.S. government handles hostage recovery in the present day? Look, I, I think that... We have to um, take a, a different approach to resolving hostage cases that, that we have so far. Um, I'm, I don't believe that uh, the stated no concession, concessions policy uh, has worked because, um, frankly, you and I both know there's often concessions that are made. Um, and you know the the difference between what happened to me and what happens to to people who are taken by Somali pirates or um al qaeda or isis ter- terrorists is that was taken by a state and i think uh it's time that we really review how we look at state sponsored hostage taking we don't call it that you know we call it you know, a detained American who's being put on a trial that we think is wrongfully detained. Wrongfully detained. Right. It's an opaque trial. It's not yep. a fair process. But you know, call it what it is. It's hostage taking. Um, and and second, you know, we have to figure out our first priority. And you know, th- th- this is again, it's it, I'm in a in a special position to be able to say this as a private citizen. The first priority must be to recover that person and bring them home. The second longer-term priority is to figure out how to put an end to state hostage-taking as a practice, make it more uh, costly for governments that want to do this in the future, or else we risk a a real epidemic of this, and I think we see it happening already. Iran's not the only country that that does it. Uh, You know, they they do it more often maybe than anybody else, Uh, but it's been something that's been going on more and more uh, in the Middle East, China's done it. Uh, there are some who say that in response, uh, the U.S. may be picking up uh, people in tit-for-tat sort of um, uh, acts of uh, essentially trying to uh, prepare the way for swaps. Um, I, I I don't have proof of that, but I've seen plenty of uh, reports and, and instances that certainly look like that. And I think we just need to put an end to it once and for all because innocent people should not be subjected to what my wife 
the rest of my family and I were subjected to and so many other families are facing. I mean, look, I had a year and a half of uh, my life stolen from me. I know the devastation it caused on us. What about those poor families whose whose um, reunion doesn't come for many many years? Um, it, it's an unfair, an unreasonable uh, set of challenges uh, to put a family through, and uh, and I hope we can figure out a way to put an end to it once and for all. Well, thanks for sharing your observations on that. So, how are you and Yegi doing? We're doing well. I mean, you know, we we we've come back to a life here in Washington D.C. that I think is. Um, pretty rich and folks have been incredibly giving to us this town has really welcomed us um but you know we have our limits and we have our tough days as well uh the truth of the matter is that we had envisioned a very different life lives for ourselves um and and we're having to to adjust accordingly uh, but you know overall i don't have any real complaints and i'm pretty happy about where we are was there anything else you want to discuss that we didn't discuss? Do you want to talk about your Persian rugs or anything? <laughs> Look, I, I think that I, what I want we, we to share say, a passion on rugs. Yeah, so I mean, sure. what I want I want people to know that uh, that the story in this book is one thing that happened to me in my life. Uh, there was a whole thirty-something years that happened before all of this, and I hope that there's going to be many more that follow it. But you know, I've always tried to put myself in situations uh, where I could uh, come back and report about something unique. Uh, and I, I think a year and a half in a, uh, a militarized prison is certainly a unique set of experiences to be able to share at this point. Well, Jason, thank you again so much for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. It's a great pleasure. Today and for writing your deeply personal memoir of 544 days in an Iranian prison. Thank you very much, Jason. I appreciate your time. And thank you, Chris, for giving me this opportunity to share my story. Appreciate you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.